We'll look this morning at the, the third section in our series in Calvinism, <clears throat> which is called Limited Atonement. Called this uh, by the idea that uh, the atonement was limited to certain people and it was only made for certain people, and that is the elect. As we were looking under unconditional election, the idea that God has chosen certain people to be saved and he has not chosen others. He has extended mercy to some and not to others. And the idea of limited atonement is a logical conclusion of that. It's a logical outworking of the doctrine of predestination in that because God has only cho chosen certain to be saved, then there only those, uh, it is only for those that Christ has died. He has only died for the ones that would be saved. And the reason being that the atonement was not general, but specific. It was not a universal atonement, but a limited atonement. It was directed towards certain people and absolutely, irrevocably, secures the salvation of those people. It has nothing to do with what man does, says, feels, or anything else. It irrevocably and absolutely secures the salvation of those people. So that the Calvinist rightly says, according to his doctrine, when Christ died, he secured the salvation of those for whom he died. Whereas we'll see later, when you hold to a theory of universal atonement, uh, that you cannot say that it absolutely secured the salvation of anyone. You can say that, only say that it provided for the salvation of people. Okay, now, the limitation to the atonement, when we see that the atonement is limited, as a logical outworking of the doctrine of predestination. In other words, because God has chosen certain ones to be saved, and because it, it, it holds to a certain view of atonement, which is it satisfies retributive and not public justice, then we have to view the fact that God has only saved certain ones. He's only died for certain ones. And it's at this point in the scheme, so far we've been looking at a major, you see a major point of, of total depravity, and you see the opposite side of that, the idea that man is free and he has chosen to bring himself into depravity. Um, speaking of moral depravity, we saw that physical depravity is accepted on both sides, inherited physical, physical depravity. And then with unconditional election, we saw that from one side and the idea of election from the other side being the fact that God has chosen to an office, but that does, does not mean necessarily that man chooses to fulfill that office. In other words, he can, he can uh, not fulfill it, uh, not fulfill his responsibility and therefore not receive the benefit of that office, even though God has called him to it. And seeing the election as a general thing rather than a specific thing, being election to an office and not chosen for some particular privilege as is commonly viewed with Calvinists. Okay? And it's at this point, with the limitation of the atonement, that we begin to see that it is two total schemes that are going two different directions, and not just some differences on some points, on individual points, such as depravity and on election, but that there are two complete schemes that are going two different directions. And as we've been looking at it, we've seen that there are some basic, some fundamental things, fundamental roots, that are quite different such as when we looked at um, election, we saw the idea of law and God. Um, but the reason that the Calvinist finds it so easy to say God simply chooses whom he's going to save and whom he is going to leave behind is that God makes up his mind as to what the law is going to be and chooses what the law will be. Whereas the view from moral government is that the law has always been imposed upon God from his own nature, not from something outside of God, but as God perceives his own metaphysical nature, he understands that he deserves well-being rather than ill-being, and therefore is obligated to choose for his own highest good. And so the idea of law and God there is the law is not arbitrary, but is something that God also understands, being a moral being, that his mind brings to him obligation, and he sees himself as responsible to choose certain things and not others. Whereas in the Calvinistic system, the idea is that it's based upon God's will or God's morals rather than his metaphysics. It's based upon his morals rather than his being. And so that as his morals change, so might the law. And the only thing we could depend upon there was the fact that God established it and said this is the way it will stay and we can only trust his promise. You see? Whereas from the other view, it's, it's different. Now, so we're, we were talking about unconditional election, and we saw that right there, the thing begins to make a very major split. And an outworking of this will be in the doctrine of, of um, well, first off in predestination, but then immediately following that in limited atonement. Now, 
It's a logical outworking of the doctrine of predestination. I'd like to give you a quote concerning this. There's a book, An Introduction to the Early History of Christian Doctrine to the Time of the Council of, of Chalcedon, and it's uh, by J.F. Bethune-Baker. And on page 352, he is giving a resume or his conclusion that he sees from reading the, um, the thoughts of the early church fathers. He's gone through about 13 different ideas of the uh, early church fathers, given many different quotes as to try to explain how they viewed the atonement. And as a summary of this, he says this concerning the atonement. As to the scope, this is page 352, as to the scope of the atonement, no limit seems to have been thought of, except by the Gnostics, till the theory of predestination was worked out. Redemption was effected for all men, according to origin, for all rational orders of being, though individuals must come within the range of its influence by an act of volition. And Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, at least, believed that ultimately all men would be redeemed. The theory of predestination carries with it a limitation of the scope of the Redeemer's work, however the limitation may be disguised. Now, I'd like to read this again and leave out the parenthetical statement so that you can catch the flow of what he's saying. As to the scope of the atonement, no limit seems to have been thought of till the theory of predestination was worked out. Redemption was effected for all men, though individuals must come within the range of its influence by an act of volition. The theory of predestination carries with it a limitation of the scope of the Redeemer's work, however the limitation may be disguised. You understand what he's saying? Is that the early church fathers seemed to see no limitation to the scope of, of the work of Jesus that he did not die specifically for certain people, but died for all. And uh, he is, uh, directly associates it here with the working of uh, predestination. Yeah, it's a logical outworking of that. Now, we'd like to look at a couple of ideas that are some background to um, the idea of limited atonement, and that is the concepts of retributive and public justice. We find a lot of people have some uh, problems with these. So we'll look at them and give them a definition. Retributive justice and public justice. Retributive justice has to do with the judicial branch of the law. That is, it has to do with what the law says about a person. If a person has sinned, then the judicial branch of the law, which is the branch that says uh, how a person stands or uh, an amendment or whatever, stands in relationship to the law, only gives a verdict. does not do anything. It only gives the verdict. And then the executive and legislative branches carry out that verdict, or the outworking of that. Well, retributive justice has to do only with the judicial branch of the law, having to do with what does the law say about a person. It has to do with personal, individual justice and what the person deserves to receive, either because they've been obedient and deserve to receive blessing, well-being, uh, reward, or because a person has been disobedient and deserves to receive uh, punishment. Now, Calvinism views the atonement as satisfying retributive justice. That is, the, the atonement deals with specifically what the law declares about a person. So that after a person has been redeemed through the atonement, the law can no longer declare that person guilty. And it's on the basis of two things, imputation and supererogation, which we'll look at later. Okay? Well, right now, let's, let's try to understand what retributive and public justice have to do with. Public justice has to do with the carrying out of the penalty of that law. It has to do with the sanctions and, the, and the, the punishment or the reward of a law, not with the actual guilt that is involved. Now, when we say, we talk about public justice, that doesn't mean that it has to do only with the public. It has to do with the individual as well, but it has to do with the individual in respect to what the law says and how it should be carried out on that person. You thinking? It has to do with what the law says about that person, specifically as to what should be carried out upon that person. So that in retributive justice, the law simply states, man is guilty. 
But concerning public justice, this is dealing with what should be done with man in order to uphold the government and protect innocent beings. What should be done with man in order to uphold the government, the rule, and to protect innocent beings? Okay? So it has to do with the carrying out. Now, we're used to thinking in these terms, in that we understand when we're forgiven that the penalty of the law will no longer be carried out on us. But that has to do with the executive or the legislative branches and not with the judicial branch. Because the law, and even God himself, can never declare us to have never broken the law if we have. That would be against reality. God could not say, we have not broken the law. And it says, says, it says in 1 John, if we say that we have not sinned, um, we're off the wall. To paraphrase. Okay. If we say that we have not sinned, okay, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or we make him a liar or whatever. It says it in two different ways there in verse 8 and verse 10. First <clears throat> John chapter 1. Okay, So we cannot say that we have not sinned. Now, when you deal with retributive justice, which is the way in which the Calvinist deals with the atonement, you have to say that man is brought to a place by two things, by supererogation, which is the work of Jesus to perform more than his obligation to the law, and then imputation, which says that God sort of exchanged our, uh, our unrighteousness for his righteousness. And he simply made a direct literal transfer of those two. And because Jesus fulfilled more than was his obligation, his obedience was given to us in the place of our disobedience so that now the law declares concerning us that we have lived a completely obedient and perfect life. You understand? So that what happens is because of the righteousness of Jesus and because of his sacrifice, the whole thing is taken care of on a judicial level that now it can only be declared by God concerning us that we have lived an absolutely perfect and obedient life because the righteousness and the obedience of Jesus is given to us in place of our unrighteousness and we are declared judicially or forensically righteous and in many cases they talk about this as our standing as apart from our state that God views us as absolutely and completely obedient as if we had never sinned ever heard that definition of justified given is just as if I'd never sinned that's forensic forensic or judicial righteousness rather than that which is spoken of in the scripture which is public okay now um, there's some points on how the Cal Calvinism views the atonement as satisfying uh, retributive rather than public justice it's viewed as a vicarious payment the atonement is viewed as a vicarious payment that was made only for the elect it is viewed as exact and literal in nature not satisfying public justice or the carrying out of the law but satisfying exactly the demands of the law it is viewed as exact and literal in nature and therefore, the conclusion automatically would be, not everyone is being saved by it. We'll look at that a little bit later, too, the logic of that, which it is a logical conclusion. Number three, it is to reconcile God to man as well as man to God. Because something in the being of God needed to be satisfied. In other words, that judicial um, de declaration against man had to be satisfied before man could be set free to have a relationship with God again and set free from the penalty of the law. Reconcile God to man as well as man to God. And so therefore you hear in songs and in statements and in, in uh, sermons and so forth, you'll hear about God's anger and God's wrath against man because of his sin and how that needed to be satisfied in order for man to be forgiven. And you get the picture of an angry God and of Jesus saying, there, there, calm down, you know, I'll die, everything will be okay. To satisfy something in the being of God. And it makes you wonder about the character of God. So then they would say that Jesus died to take the wrath and the curse and the punishment 
that we deserve upon himself. Wrath, curse, and punishment upon himself. Now, you automatically have this. Um, outwork, one of these is an outworking. I should say, you ha I'm going to give you an example of an outworking of this. That when the atonement is limited, you can't really be sure whether or not it was made for you. Now, they will say, of course, that you have assurance in the fact that if you have repented and believed and you have the witness of the Holy Spirit, then you will know that you, ha you are a part of the elect. But when you're dealing with people, um, it's, it works out sort of like this. And I'll give you a quote from Competent to Counsel by J.E. Adams, who is a Presbyterian or Reformed theologian. And he says, on page 70, he says, As a Reformed Christian, the writer believes that counselors must not tell any unsaved counselee that Christ died for him, for they cannot say that. <clears throat> no man knows except Christ himself who are his elect and for whom he died. But the counselor's task is to explain the gospel and to say very plainly that God commands all men to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. So then he says that because of the limitation of the atonement and because Jesus has only died for the elect, a counselor, Christian counselor, cannot tell an unsaved counselee that Christ has died for him because he does not know whether or not Christ has died for that person. That's just a simple illustration of how this works out in practice in your counseling. Okay? Um, I'd like to give you another quote from the Introduction to Early History of Christian Doctrine by J.S. Bethune-Baker on the teaching of the early church fathers. This is again in his resume concerning the atonement. Very interesting quote. From this review of the teaching of the church, it will be seen that there is only the most slender support to be found in the earliest centuries for some of the views that became current at a later time. It is at least clear that the sufferings of Christ were not regarded as an exchange or substitution of penalty or as punishment inflicted on him by the Father for our sins. There is, that is to say, no idea of vicarious satisfaction, either in the sense that our sins are imputed to Christ and his obedience to us, or in the sense that God was angry with him for our sakes and inflicted on him punishment due to us. Remember now, this is a negative statement. He's saying that's, that's not the way they viewed it. They did not view it that way. Also, in spite of a phrase or two suggesting another conception, it is clear that the main thought is that man is reconciled to God by the atonement, not God to man. The change, that is, which it affects, is a change in man rather than a change in God. It is God's unchangeable love for mankind that prompts the atonement itself, is the cause of it, and ultimately determines the method by which it is affected. So he says there's very, very slender support to, to get any other conception than the idea that it was not a vicarious payment. It was not a transfer, a direct literal transfer from of sin for sin or of obedience for sin or anything like that. Okay? Now we'd like to look at some um, objections to the idea of limited atonement. Some objections to the idea of limited atonement. And then we'll look at some objections to the idea of universal atonement and try to give the answers from both sides. Some objections to limited atonement. A. The offer of salvation appears to be made to all men in many scripture passages. That's what the person who believes in universal atonement would, one of the arguments they would use. The offer of salvation appears to be made to all men in many scripture passages. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God um, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um, God desires to have all men come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? Many passages appear as if the uh, salvation is offered to all men. Okay? And they, I believe they would answer in this fashion, because of the mixture in the world of the elect and the non-elect, God has to offer salvation to all so that the elect will hear. And then as they hear, they can respond to it. But he has to offer salvation as well to the people who never will believe because God is going to pass them by and he's not going to grant them grace in order to believe that 
God has to make that offer of salvation to everyone in order that the elect might hear. That, as I understand it, is the answer that they would give to the fact that salvation is, is offered to all people. That's the, that's the, yeah, that's the, the um, answer, I think, that they, they, the Calvinists, would give to that. Okay? These are objections to limited atonement, and we're trying to see the answers that a person who accepts limited atonement would, would uh, give to this. Okay? B. It seems to present God as unjust and unmerciful in his passing by some and not others. You understand the objection? It appears to present God as being unmerciful in passing by some people and granting salvation only to certain ones. And the answer, as I understand they would give to this, is that God is merciful to save anybody. That absolutely everybody deserves to be lost forever because of the sin in which they're involved. And so God is extending mercy in saving anyone and that he can, now this, remember this goes back to the idea that God makes up the law, that it's arbitrary with him, that God can choose to extend mercy to whomever he pleases and still be benevolent, still be completely benevolent and extend mercy to whomever he pleases. Whereas if you view God as uh, being restricted in his own being by law, in other words, understanding that he has law himself, we would not see him as being, as being consistent with benevolence, true benevolence, and still being able to love some and not others. And as um, Arthur Pink said, God doesn't love everybody. If he did, he would love the devil. Okay, we've seen that in another lecture. Okay, um, see, we must see God as insincere in his offer of salvation to all men. We must see God as insincere in his offer of salvation to all men. And the answer again, of course, to this is that God has to offer salvation to all men in order that the elect might hear. And he's not being insincere, it's just that some people will not believe and others will. Some people will be granted grace to believe. They'll be given the gift of faith, as it is spoken of, and others will not. And so God is not insincere in his offer of salvation to all men because there are those that simply will not believe because they will not be given grace. And he is still sincere in his offer even though some will not believe. No one, this is another objection, no one has a right to embrace salvation before he has a personal revelation that he is among the elect. No one has a right to embrace salvation before he has a personal revelation that he is among, among the elect. Now, the, the reasoning here goes, what is a person to believe as the basis of their salvation? Now, I'll give you a quote. Um, from Charles Finney. He's talking about this particular subject in his Systematic Theology from Lecture 26. And he says this concerning the atonement. If ministers do not believe that it was made for all, for all men, they cannot hardly and honestly press its acceptance upon any individual or congregation in the world, for they cannot assure any individual or congregation that there is any atonement for him or them any more than there is for Satan. If to this it should be replied that for fallen angels no atonement has been made, but for some men an atonement has been made, so that it may be true of any individual that it was made for him, and if he will truly believe, he will thereby have the fact revealed that it was in fact made for him, I reply, what is a sinner to believe as a condition of salvation? Is it merely that an atonement was made for somebody? Is this saving faith? Must he not embrace it and personally and individually commit himself to it and to Christ? Trust in it as made for him? But how is he authorized to do this upon the supposition that the atonement was made for some men only and perhaps for him? 
Is it saving faith to believe that it was possibly made for him, and by believing this possibility, will he thereby gain the evidence that it was, in fact, made for him? No, he must have the word of God for it, that it was made for him. Nothing else can warrant the casting of his soul upon it. How then is he, quote, truly to believe, end quote, or trust in the atonement until he has the evidence, not merely that it possibly may have been, but that it actually was made for him. The mere possibility that an atonement has been made for an individual is no ground of saving faith. What is he to believe? Why? That of which he has proof. But the supposition is that he has proof only that it is possible that an atonement was made for him. Has he a right, or he has a right then, to believe that it was possible that Christ died for him? And is this saving faith? No, it is not. What advantage then has he over Satan in this respect? Satan knows that the atonement was not made for him. The sinner, upon the supposition, knows that possibly it may have been made for him. But the latter has really no more ground for trust and reliance than the former. He might hope, but he could not rationally believe. That's... um the objection, as it would be stated, I think, in this case, is the objection is you cannot really embrace salvation before you have real evidence that it was made for you. You can only say, I can hope that it was made for me. You can't say, it was made for me, and therefore I can be saved, or I am, am saved through it. And I believe that the um, uh, Calvinists would respond in this way. Assurance is given to you by the fact that you have repented and believed, and you do have the witness of the Holy Spirit that you are among the elect. And it's not necessary for you to have revealed the, the exact fact revealed before you are saved, but that God commands all men everywhere to repent, and thus he commands everybody to repent, and after you repent, you will understand that you were saved because you would not have repented and believed if God had not already saved you. As we have seen before, the idea is that God saves you first, and then, as a response, you repent and believe. And repent and belief are not viewed as conditions of salvation, but simply a response to the fact that you already are saved. Okay? We must be careful when we're thinking about it, because we're taught in a different fashion, to remember that repentance and belief is not viewed as conditions of salvation. Not viewed as conditions. But the, the response that you make to the fact that God has already saved you that's something that he does, you have nothing to do with it. Okay? And then you just make a response by repenting and believing. E. It appears as if sinners are universally condemned for not accepting the offer of salvation. It appears as if sinners are universally condemned for not accepting the offer of salvation that's extended to them. And the answer, I think, that would be given to this is that yes, People are condemned for not doing what God tells them to do. But there are some to whom God gives grace in order that they might be able to do it, and there are others to whom he does not give grace. And they are thus not able to do what God has commanded them to do. Of course, that's not his fault, that's their fault, because they're totally depraved. As you think about that, you go, hmm, my fault? That I'm totally depraved and I was born this way. Okay, so then people are universally condemned for not accepting the offer of salvation, or thus it appears. Yes, they are, but people are still responsible even for that which they are not able, the Calvinist would reply. So therefore, all men are universally condemned, even though they could not accept the offer because of their depravity and because God did not grant them grace. Okay, and the Calvinist would say they are justly condemned. F. It would appear as if the idea of limited atonement makes people face unnecessary doubt about their being a part of the elect. It would seem as if there never really could be assurance in the fact that you could appear as if you had repented and believed, and here it was, it was the most amazing thing, um, reading in Calvin's Institutes, a most amazing thing that at one point he talked about a temporary salvation. It was quite amazing. 
They talked about people believing for a while and then falling away, which seems quite inconsistent with the rest of the, the scope of the thing. It's in the, in the Institutes of Calvin. F. Okay, it makes people face unnecessary doubt about their being a part of the elect. It would appear as if you could never have real assurance that you are a part of the, a part of the elect. Because you could go through the acts of repentance and belief, and still, if God had not chosen you to be saved, even though it appeared as if you had repented and believed, you would still not be saved in the end. Could live your entire life thinking that you were a Christian and then be separated from God. Okay? The answer to this, is, as we've seen before, the person will have the fact revealed to them that they are among the elect as a witness of the Holy Spirit after they repent and believe. They will have that revealed to them. And so there will be assurance through the witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'd like to give some more um, uh, quotes. A quote from uh, Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen, the Calvinist. And he is here arguing, in the whole book, The Death of Death, he is arguing against universal atonement. And he gives some uh, examples of the arguments against limited atonement, and then he gives some of his answers to those. And we will see that many of these have already been covered. Okay? Um, in a, an outline at the beginning of the book, pages 29 and 30, a he has a refutation of exegetical arguments for universal redemption. There are three classes of disputed texts. Those describing the intended and accomplished end of Christ's death in general and indefinite terms. In other words, when the Bible speaks about all men being saved through Christ. There's that class of texts. Those seeming to suggest its ineffectiveness for some for whom Christ died. In other words, it appears as if some people will not be saved even though Christ died for all people. And because their view is retributive, it's hard for them to understand how you can say that Christ died for all people and then not all people are saved. And if it, is, if it does deal with retributive justice, that would have to be true. That if Christ died for all people, then all people would have to be saved because it was a direct payment for their sins. And then the third class, those making general offers of Christ and promises of salvation through him to all who will believe, including some who, in the event, do not. Okay? He makes general offer of Christ and promises of salvation through him to all who will believe, including some who, in the event, do not believe. Okay? And then he gives biblical principles accounting for these modes of speech. These are his answers to these. Biblical principles accounting for these modes of speech. Number one, Christ's blood is of infinite worth sufficient to save all. This fact is the ground of the universal preaching of the gospel and of the general promise that all who believe will be saved. In other words, when it says that Christ died for all, it's saying that the value of the blood of Jesus is infinite. That does not mean necessarily that the atonement was made for everyone. The value of the death of Jesus was infinite, but it does not mean that the death of Jesus was made for everyone. Number two, the barrier between Jew and Gentile is broken down and the restriction of grace ended under the new covenant. Many of the general expressions in scripture tend only to stress this fact. So they would say that in a lot of the statements where it says that Jesus died for all men, that what it's saying is that he died for Gentile as well as Jew. And that is the only thing that is being argued for, not that Jesus died for all, every individual man, for all men. But it's simply saying when he died for all men, that he died for Jew and Gentile. And that that was the only thing that was really being argued for. When it says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is one that was refuted. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was only meaning that he died for the Gentile as well as the Jew. Uh, John 3.16 is interpreted in that way. God so loved the world that Jesus was only arguing for the fact that Gentiles could be saved as well. Every race of people. When it says all men, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all Jews and Gentiles should come to repentance. But not all men, not every individual. 
Okay? Number three. Man's duty and God's purpose are distinct things so that God's command in the gospel that all should repent and believe cannot be held to imply his intention that all should do so. Okay? You understand that? We've covered it before. In other words, God commands people to repent, but that doesn't mean that he's going to grant them the grace to be able to do so. Number four, the Jews supposed that salvation was restrained to themselves. Phrases like the world, all men, all nations, every creature are often used emphatically to contradict this mistake. Number five, general terms like world and all are complex and equivocal in meaning and must be interpreted where they occur in the light of the context. Number six, scripture speaks sometimes according to the appearance of human estimate of things and may ascribe to the members of a professing Christian community things that are peculiar to God's children when some of them are really hypocrites and reprobate. In other words, people can appear to be Christians, be living in a Christi in Christian community, in other words, with the fellowship of the saints, and can really be hypocrites and reprobate, and they still appear as if they are Christians. Judgments of... Well, we won't... I'm going to skip number seven. It's almost the same thing. Number eight. The offers and promises of the gospel are intended to teach the infallible connection that there is between faith and salvation not the divine intention that all should repent and believe. In other words, when it says that if you believe, then you will be saved, only expresses the connection between faith and salvation and does not say, is not setting up faith as a condition of salvation. But it's only meant to express the idea that there is a connection between the two. But that does not mean that God is going to, uh, has intended that all should be saved or that he will get grant grace for all to be saved. Number nine, the mixed distribution of elect and reprobate throughout the world and the church makes it necessary that the gospel promises should be unrestricted in form and should be preached to many whom God does not intend to save. Had that point before. Number ten, the faith which the gospel requires involves a number of acts in, specific, in a specific order. First, believing that we cannot save ourselves, but that God has provided a Savior, Jesus Christ. Then, resting on Christ for salvation according to the gospel invitation and promise. Finally, inferring from the fact that God has enabled us to do this, that Christ died for us individually. Okay? That's where the idea would come in that therefore we are saved because we have repented. Now, we'd like to look at some objections to universal atonement. And these won't be near as long, so hang on. I'd like to look at some objections to universal atonement as are leveled by the people from um, the opposite side. A. The Bible represents Christ as dying for his sheep or for the elect, etc. It appears as if in the scripture, in some places, that Christ has died for a certain group of people. A certain group of people called the elect or his sheep. And the person accepting universal atonement, I believe, would answer in this fashion, that because the scripture says that Christ died for his elect or his sheep, does not tell you how they became elect or sheep. And the important point is, how did they become elect or sheep? Were they chosen that way by God and made irrevocably against, against whatever they choose, think, or whatever? Were they made sheep or made the elect? Or were there conditions involved with their becoming elect or sheep? It's very. It's, it's okay for the scripture to say that Christ died for his elect. Depends on how they become the elect. Whether or not that is something that they are made to be, whether they're made to be sheep, or whether they choose to be sheep by following the shepherd. Okay. B. It is folly to offer what might be rejected. It is useless expenditure of Christ's blood and suffering for him to die for some to die for people that will reject the offer of salvation it appears to be a useless expenditure of Christ's blood and suffering it's folly to offer what might be rejected and the answer to this number 1 
number one under B, is that assumes a payment theory. It assumes retributive justice. That statement does. Automatically assumes retributive justice. Because to say that it's a useless expenditure is to say that an actual payment was made and then was rejected. But if provision was made and was not an actual expenditure of um, the suffering and the, blood, and the blood of Jesus in the sense of a payment, then it was not wasted. Because it wasn't made directly and literally, it was only made provisionally. Number two, the, the atonement would display God's mercy regardless if anyone ever accepted it. If no one ever accepted and became a follower of, of, of God and thus received the benefits of the atonement, it would still display God's mercy. And then point number three that follows on after that, it would be of value to the universe as a revelation of God's character regardless if anybody were ever saved through it. And the extent of that value, um, I don't think we could judge as a revelation of God's character. Of course, that would be said on, on both sides. It would be said by the Calvinists and the Armenian. Okay? It's a value to the universe as a revelation of God's character, even if nobody ever accepted. See? Universal atonement implies universal salvation. That if Jesus died for everyone, therefore everyone is going to be saved. Number one, under that, well, I only have one point, so you don't have to write number one. That's a bad outline. This is true only if the nature of the atonement is a payment to satisfy retributive justice. You see, here again, it is assuming that the atonement is retributive, that it's dealing with retributive justice, a direct, literal payment for sin, rather than dealing with public justice, which would make provision for the person to be free, but would not say that the, uh, that the sin was actually paid for then D, if the atonement is not a payment, it secures the salvation of no one. That's the, the, the objection. If the atonement is not a payment, it secures the salvation of no one. And to this, we would have to answer, yes, that's true. It secures the salvation of no one, but makes provision for the salvation of all the answer we'd have to give. If it is not a payment, it right, they rightly claim that it would, it would secure the salvation of no one. We'd have to agree with that. It doesn't secure the salvation of anyone if it's not a payment. So we'd have to agree. But the question is, is it a satisfaction of public or retributive justice? Now, for, that's the end of the objections. I want to go on and look at, for the last major point here, the atonement as a satisfaction of public justice. What do we mean by that? Now, when we saw retributive justice as opposed to public justice, retributive has to do with the actual state of the sinner. The actual state of the sinner and what the law declares concerning him judicially. Okay? Now, the um, view of public justice has to do with what is carried out upon the sinner. It has to do with the sanctions of the law that have been imposed by God to uphold the law or the government. The law itself being eternal and self-evident the sanctions themselves not being eternal and self-evident, but being imposed by the lawgiver. God being spoken of as the moral governor of the universe. That as he saw himself obligated to rule man, because of man's need to be ruled as a finite creature, he also saw himself obligated to impose sanctions on the law in order to impress upon man's mind the importance of doing that which is right. The importance of upholding the good of the universe and of God. And so as he, is, as he has laid out sanctions upon the law, he, has impre he impresses our minds with the importance of what should be done. Now, a moral creature cannot be governed by force or you no longer have a moral creature. It can only be governed by sanctions impressed upon the mind. And so God has established sanctions or consequences to the law and impresses upon the mind of man the importance of the law with the use of those sanctions. And so their function is to try to urge man, although it cannot be determined for sure, man's being a moral being, able to choose one way or another, it cannot be determined for sure which way man will choose 
even though the sanctions are impressed upon the mind. So then in God's government, he has established a way of trying to impress man's mind with what is important, what should be chosen, and what should not. And the, san the sanctions serve that function in order to impress man's mind. But the sanctions themselves are not self-evident. Now, there are natural and governmental sanctions to the law. The natural ones, he built into the creation. You get a guilty conscience. It bothers you. It disturbs your peace if you sin. Okay? As well as you have a, you have a peace of conscience if you're doing that which is right. So that's a natural sanction. And then there are governmental sanctions. And it appears that the governmental sanction that God has placed upon it is separation from his presence and endless suffering. Okay, now, so we get an idea of what retributive and public justice have to do with then, whether it has to do with the actual, actual taking away of sin so that the person is, a, is in a state, or so that a person is in a state where they had never sinned, or whether it has to do with the carrying out of the penalty of the law, or not carrying out in accordance with their being forgiven. So, um, under this, the idea of uh, it's being a, pub, a satisfaction of public justice, God had no problems in his attitude towards us. God had no problems in his attitude towards us. There was nothing in his character that needed to be satisfied. Nothing in his character that needed to be satisfied toward us. All the way through the Old Testament, you see the fact that God's attitude has not changed towards man. He was moved with pity when people were afflicted, even, through, even because of their own sins. He was still moved with pity towards people. You read that specifically in the book of Judges. See that? People brought them upon themselves judgment, and then he was moved with pity, even though they were suffering justly. And you see that God's idea of forgiveness all the way through the Old Testament. Oh, that you'd only kept my law. Okay? So then, retributive justice, or payment theory, implies wrath or vengeance in the character of God something that needed to be satisfied to the divine being in order that he might be reconciled to man rather than man's being reconciled to God or along with. I think Calvinists would say that both had to happen. God had to be reconciled to man and man had to be reconciled to God. You see in John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, uh, he comes out very strongly for that in the first few chapters. That it was man, God had to be reconciled to man as well as man's being reconciled to God. Okay? That implies that there was something in the character of God that needed to be satisfied through the atonement of Jesus. And under this, I give you a few points you can think about. Retributive justice can only be paid by the sinner. If you're talking about the guilt of the law, then in accordance with God's laws it themselves expressed in the scripture, only the person who has sinned can bear the guilt of his own sin. You'll see in the law stated many places, the father shall not be put to death for the son's sins, and the son shall not be put to death for the father's sins. In Ezekiel chapter 18, you see it says the, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge, and what did God say? You shall have no more occasion to use this proverb against me in Israel. God said what you're doing basically is you're using this against my justice, and you're saying I'm not fair. And he said, you have no more, you'll have no more occasion to do this against me. Is that the fathers, uh, the children are receiving the punishment that their father should have received for their sin. And then he takes the whole chapter to go through three generations of people, righteous and unrighteous, and um, shows unequivocally that he has no such sense of justice, but that the man who sins shall bear the penalty of his own sin. Okay? Either retributive justice can only be paid by the sinner, or the payment will include some kind of imputation or supererogation. I'll give you these words and we'll define them, look at them. Imputation or supererogation. Supererogation is the idea that Jesus did above and beyond his duty to fulfill the moral law. 
in essence implies that Jesus did not have an obligation to fulfill the law. He had no such obligation. And then as he kept, as he did the things that he did, as he was loving, he was kind, as he, as he healed people, as he expressed mercy, that all of that was an act of supererogation or going beyond the call of duty, so to speak. Going beyond your duty and fulfilling up, sort of making a plus sign. Going beyond your duty so that other people could receive the benefit of his obedience. Whereas that I know of, we don't read any place in the New Testament. may be disputed, but I don't think I know of any place in the New Testament where it says that Jesus did not have to keep the law for himself. Otherwise, what would statements like, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth mean, if Jesus had no obligation? If he did not have to keep the law, what kind of statement would that be? Why the story of the temptation in the wilderness, if, it, if he had no obligation to keep? And if he could not sin, because if he had no obligation, obviously he could not sin. Okay? So then the idea is that includes supererogation or going beyond the call of duty. And then as a result of that, imputation. That means that God takes the obedience of Jesus and lays it to our account. And then he treats us in accordance with perfect obedience because that obedience is directly, literally given to us. And then in accordance with law, God has to view us as if we had never sinned. Because we are then in a state as if we never had. And not only then, but always in a state as if we never had sinned. You can see then how um, perseverance of the saints is an immediate result of that. The payment includes imputation or supererogation. Now this would imply that Jesus suffered endlessly if he took the direct literal payment of sin, and if that means to suffer endlessly, that would mean then that Jesus must have suffered endlessly, which we don't get any indication in the, in the scripture or in reality that he did such. Otherwise, he would still be suffering. Now, it can, all, it can be said by the Calvinists that a split second with God took care of enough to take care of eternity for all the rest of the people in the world. That argument can be used. I don't know of what value it is, but it, it is used. Now, we want to look at physical death. Physical death is a consequence and not a punishment for sin. Physical death is a consequence, not a punishment for sin. If it were a, a punishment, then it would actually be not a punishment, but a reward. That is, if it were the only result, physical death, if it were the only result. Now, Jesus is no longer separated from the Father, so obviously he didn't undergo endless separation from the Father. But it would actually be a reward because then if you die and immediately go to heaven, then which would you choose? To sin and go to heaven, you know, die and then immediately go to heaven, or to live a perfectly obedient life and stay here for the rest of your life, forever, down here on the earth? It would almost be a reward in that sense. But that's only if you regard it as the only punishment. Of course, there are very few people that regard it that way. Now, there's another problem with um, death as, a, as a, physical, a physical death as a punishment, and that is that if you are forgiven, why do you still die? If you are forgiven, the punishment is laid aside, in accordance, in according with the scripture, it's laid aside, then why do you still die? Why do you still undergo the punishment? Whereas you see, if you view it as a consequence rather than a punishment, people can undergo it even though they, in some cases, have not sinned, such as little children. Another point is that really there is no forgiveness then because all die. And so therefore punishment is carried out on everyone if physical death is a punishment for sin rather than a consequence. Another point is that animals and children suffer the same penalty as people that are completely given over to sin. People that are completely living out their selfishness, such a thing is possible, but people that are, that are living out a tremendously selfish life undergo the same kind of thing as animals and children do, or they under, children and animals undergo the same kind of penalty that they do. 
So that there appears to be, this is another point, no proportion to the guilt of sin. You die or you die. You might be a horrible sinner or you may be a little child that's never sinned. But in either, either way, you die. And in some cases, people who are completely given over to sin die in their sleep and don't undergo as much pain as little children do who might die immediately after they were born. So it sustains no proportion to the guilt of sin and it is not an adequate expression of the importance of the precept that is broken. The precept that is broken is the moral law of God and that is infinite and eternal, self-evident, and it sustains no proportion, physical death sustains no proportion to the precept of what is given. It doesn't express adequately the importance of the precept that is broken. Therefore, only endless suffering and not physical death can satisfy retributive justice as far as being a direct literal payment for sin is concerned. Now, why did God need to establish sanction? In order to try to obtain the end of the law, which was that we, as moral beings, should choose to the well-being of God and the universe as an end in itself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are to choose the well-being of God and the universe for its own sake. We understand that as our obligation, that that is the end for which we should live. And God was simply expressing that to us as something that he understood as well. Does he choose for the highest good of himself and the universe? Yes. And he, he feels himself obligated to do so. Therefore, the scripture says, he is love. He is holy. He is just. We could not make those statements about God if he had no moral obligation himself. You can only say a being is loving, and it can only mean something if it could have done something other than love. You can only say a being is holy when it could have been something other than holy. It only has any, I should say, it only has any virtue if it could have been something other than holy. We've looked at why God established sanctions, and that was to try to secure, by impressing upon the moral being's mind, to try to secure the end of the law. You still following me? To try to secure the end of the law. That's why he established and impressed upon man's mind the sanctions. Okay? Now, they sustain a relationship to the end of the government. God is trying to secure the end of the government. And they sustain only that end. So then that means that the atonement was necessary to uphold the law and yet allow God to be able to lay aside the penalty of the law. And it goes like this. If God can find a way... Uh, see, what God wants to be able to do is receive man back to himself. Now, man justly deserves to be separated from him and to suffer endlessly. But God wants to find a way to allow man to come back to himself. But a problem that he has is his government. How is he to uphold the statement, the soul that sins it shall die, and still allow man to come back to himself? Isn't he, in essence, saying the soul that sins it shall live? Which the whole universe would revolt, the idea. Okay. So then he says the soul that sins it shall die. Now, what does he do? There's a sanction there. It shall die. It's going to be separated from him. Now, the whole reason that he established the sanction was in order to impress people with the importance of keeping the, sanction, of keeping the law. And so if he can still impress man's mind to the same extent with some other event and secure in that moral being's life the end of the government, then he can justly lay aside the penalty of the law and not carry it out. Should I put that in simpler terms? If God can find a way to impress me to love him and to love the universe, he has accomplished what he was after. He's accomplished in my life what he was after, was to get me to live like that. And that was the reason why he impressed, impressed me with such as reward, being in his presence, or punishment, which is being separated from his presence. He impresses my mind with those results of my obedience or disobedience. And he's trying to get me to love him and to love the universe, to see, not selfishly, not to try to escape the punishment or to have the reward, but simply because it's right to do so. I'm obligated to do so. Now, if he can find a way to still impress me with that and accomplish in my life loving him 
and loving the universe and setting my whole life in that direction, then he can justly lay aside the penalty of the law because that particular sanction is no longer necessary in my life, unless, of course, I sin again. Okay? So then what he has done through the cross is provided a way in the event of the cross to impress man's mind to the same extent as the, as the sanction of hell would do or the sanction of heaven would do. Actually, he has something greater than hell because in the atonement you see the penalty for sin that man will suffer if he does not repent, but you also see the love and the mercy that God extended in the fact that he suffered when he didn't have to. He suffered when he was without sin. Okay? Now, one person cannot bear another person's punishment, but a person can suffer even though they are innocent. So when Jesus died, he was not suffering punishment for other people, but he was suffering. Because you can be innocent and suffer to a great extent, and yet one person cannot bear the punishment for another person in their breaking of the law. Okay? See that all the way through the Old Testament. And God was not breaking that, that law that he established in the Old Testament when Jesus died, although that is said very frequently by the Calvinists that God... Uh, at that particular point, changed that law. And one person suffered punishment for another person. Okay, then. Right. The atonement was necessary to uphold the law then. Not saying the atonement was not necessary. It was. If God was going to justly forgive man and yet uphold the law, there had to be some kind of an event that was, in the, that was the same magnitude in effect as the sanctions would be upon man's mind. Okay, now I'm going to give you some syllogism. You know what syllogism is? So, logical progression of thought from major premise, minor premise, to conclusion. If this, then that. Okay, a little bit of logic here. The Bible states two things. Jesus died for all men. It also states that not all are being saved, not all men. Okay? states those two things. Now, if we take the idea that the atonement is a payment, a direct literal payment, And we take that as a major premise and take one of these two statements as a minor premise, if we view the atonement as direct literal payment for sin, and then say that Jesus died for all men, and you can write that in here, it was a direct literal payment for sin, Jesus died for all men, I would conclude, therefore, those three little dots mean therefore, what would I conclude? Everybody's going to be saved, or all are saved. I guess all are have to be present tense, wouldn't it? Actually, past tense. Everybody, everybody has been saved because Jesus has died. Okay? Now, if I take this, a direct literal payment for sin, and then as, as my, my minor premise, I say, not all are being saved. It was a direct literal payment for sin, and not all are being saved. What must my conclusion be? Right. Jesus didn't die for all men, or he didn't make payment for everyone. Or limited atonement. Okay? And you see that if you take literal, a literal payment theory, or retributive justice, as a major premise, and then you take one of these as a minor premise, it negates the other. Did you, did you notice that as we went through? If you say a literal payment for sin is that Jesus, and, and then say Jesus died for all men, not, then all men are saved. And if you say it's a literal payment for sin and not all are being saved, then Jesus didn't die for all men. And yet the Bible says both of those things. And how do we put those together? Well, if you say Jesus died for all men as your major premise, and then not all men are being saved as a minor premise, you would conclude, therefore, 
the atonement is universal and contains conditions for its application. That would mean then that the reason that not all men are being saved is not because of the nature of the atonement, but because of something else. The atonement is universal and contains conditions for its application. Or not necessarily, you couldn't say necessarily conditions for its application, but the reason that not all men are being saved is not in the nature of the atonement itself, but in something else. There's a very close connection between that and the nature of the atonement, but it would lie in something else, which we see in the, in the scripture to be the conditions of repentance and belief. That the reason that not, people, not all people are being saved is because not all people are repenting and believing, and those are conditions to be able to receive what, what was um, provided for in the atonement. So that as I see what happened on the cross, I look at the cross and I say, that should be me. Excuse my grammar. But colloquially I say, that should be me. And Jesus suffered something that he didn't deserve to suffer because he had never sinned. And I look at that and I say, I should suffer. I should pay the penalty. And as I'm brought to the place of repentance and then faith and trust and confidence in God, as I choose to change my whole direction of life, to be towards loving God and, uh, and the universe that he's made, the general well-being of being, then God is free to set aside the penalty of the law because he has accomplished in my life what he was after to start with. And I'm no longer a threat to innocent beings or to the universe. Okay? So we've had a look at limited atonement and we'll uh, continue the next one with irresistible grace and talk about the application of this to the person's life, which has to do with irresistible grace. And we'll see how they continue on from there.